Please, congregation, turn your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, where we'll begin reading at verse 26 and read through verse 56. We come this morning to the last of the mothers, to Mother Mary. Jesus, we confess, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We read here in verses 26 and following comes on the heels of God's gracious revelation to Zechariah and Elizabeth concerning the birth of John the Baptist in verses 5 to 25. The name John, you may know, means the Lord is gracious. In that revelation to Zechariah, God had once again spoken to his people to say grace is coming. Grace is coming. That message is going to be at the heart of John the Baptist's ministry, and in verses 26 and following, we discover why that is. This is God's holy and inspired word. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Indeed, congregation, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I just said a few moments ago, we've come this morning to the end of our series of the Mothers of Christ. And what especially stood out to me when I first began to study this passage was that which also stood out to Mary herself in verse 54. That the Lord has helped his people. He has helped his servant Israel. And he's done so in remembrance of his mercy. For it was indeed in remembrance of his mercy that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. It was in remembrance of his mercy, the mercy that he had promised all the way back in the garden when he assured the man and the woman that the seed of the woman would come to to crush the head of the serpent. It was in remembrance of his mercy that God sent his angel to appear to the Virgin Mary, saying, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, a name which we know means Savior. For God had not forgotten. After the 400 years that have now come and gone between Malachi and Matthew, after the 4,000 years that have, that have now passed since Adam, God had not forgotten. But in the fullness of time, he helped his servant Israel. In the fullness of time, he helped you and me in remembrance of his mercy. In his amazing grace, God did not forget to be merciful. In his covenant faithfulness, God did not forsake his people to to leave them on their own. But in the fullness of time, God remembered his mercy. And he put that mercy on grand display in order that you and I and the whole world might believe and be saved. And so the Apostle Paul got it exactly right, didn't he? The Apostle Paul got it exactly right when he began to, to write to the Corinthians in the second letter, Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. Because this is indeed who God is. Boys and girls, our God is the Father of all mercies. He is the the God of all comfort. He does not forget us in our misery, but He remembers us in His mercy. Indeed, those words that we sang at the start of our worship service are true. Our song forever shall record the the tender mercies of the Lord. We sing of mercies that endure, forever build it firm and sure. We sing of faithfulness that, that never dies, established changeless in the skies. And what the Spirit is summoning us to do this morning is to take those words to heart. 
The Spirit is summoning us to do, as the psalmist says in Psalm 89, to, to behold God's truth and grace displayed for his faithful covenant he has made. For he has sworn that David's son shall ever sit upon the throne. This is the good news that the angel Gabriel proclaims to Mary, isn't it? Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and you will conceive in your room and bear a son. He shall call his name Jesus and he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. To quote J.C. Ryle, we have in these verses the announcement of the most marvelous event that has ever happened in this world, the incarnation and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a passage, says Ryle, which should always be read with mingled wonder, love, and praise. Because notice in the first place the lowly, an assuming manner in which this announcement of the Savior comes. The angel has not come to someone who is held in high esteem by the world. He's not come to a, to a real somebody, so to speak, but he's come to a nobody from nowhere. God has not sent his angel to the city of Jerusalem, but God has sent his angel to the obscure and insignificant town of Nazareth in Galilee. He sends his angel to a lowly virgin who, although she's engaged to Joseph, a man of the house of David, was not himself a man of any social standing either. But as we've seen the last number of weeks, this is the manner in which God's grace often comes, isn't it? God's grace often comes in surprising and in unexpected ways. God's grace came in the midst of Eve's grieving over Abel's death, in the midst of Eve's hopes having been dashed, having thought that perhaps Cain would be the one to to crush the serpent's head. God's grace came again. He began again and, and gave her Seth, another offspring. This was the manner in which God's grace came to Judah through the unexpected Tamar, who was more righteous than he. God's spies were kept safe in Jericho, having worked previously grace in the heart of a harlot. Naomi's bitterness was transformed into joy, having worked in a Moabite's heart. And even undeserving, adulterous David is forgiven. He was also given another son named Jedidiah, meaning beloved of the Lord. God's grace often comes in unexpected ways. God has not chosen Mary to be the mother of our Lord because he's seen something so special or or extraordinary in her. But God has done so according to his own good pleasure. And he has promised to her what he has likewise promised to us. He has promised her a savior. The Lord writes, one pastor could have easily chosen a a daughter of some rich scribe to be the mother of our Lord. But it seemed good to him that it should not be so. For the first advent of the Messiah was to be an advent of humiliation. And that humiliation was to begin already from the time of his conception and birth. 
And so writes, Ryle, let us admire the amazing condescension of the Son of God. Christ, you see, not only takes upon himself our flesh and blood, he not only takes upon himself a, a real human nature, but he does so in the most humbling way possible. It would have been unspeakable condescension to come into the world in and, and riches and royalty. But it was a miracle of his mercy. It was a miracle of mercy passing our comprehension to come to earth as a poor man, to be despised, to suffer, and to die. But this we've come to learn is precisely the reason that he had to come. Christ had to come in this way and with this purpose because this is what our sins deserved. On, on account of our sins, we deserve to be despised. On account of our sins, we deserved to die. We deserve to have nothing. And as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might be made rich. This glorious announcement comes to the lowly Virgin Mary, and his name, the angel says, shall be Jesus, meaning Savior. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never come to an end. This congregation is Mary's Savior. In the first place, the angel tells us that this child shall be great, and we, we know something of his greatness, don't we? We know that this child of whom the angel speaks is indeed going to be the, the Savior of the world. He will show himself to be the, the greater prophet, that is, John would say the the law we know came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We know that God had spoken faithfully and, and graciously through the prophets. But in the latter days, God spoke to his people more fully, more definitively than he had ever done before in his son, the great prophet. Christ will show himself to be the the greater high priest. The high priest of the Old Testament had to offer up daily sacrifice, so he knew not only for the sins of the people, but also for their own sins. And their work was never done. Year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day, every morning, every evening, sacrifices had to be made. But when Christ came to offer himself as the great sacrifice, the great high priest, when his work was done, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And Christ will show himself to be the greater king, as we'll see in verses 32 and 33. In the first place, this child is going to be great. In the second place, the angel says, this child shall be called the Son of the Most High. For this is who Christ was from before the foundation of the world. In the beginning, says John, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This child, therefore, is going to be worthy of the world's worship. He is going to be worthy of the world's praise. And in the third place, the Lord will give to this child the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never come to an end. Christ is indeed going to be the king that God's people stood in desperate need of ever since the first king had 
cast his crown down to the ground in the garden. Christ will be a king in whom there will be no compromising with sin at all. He is going to be the kind of king who will actually have the law of God written on his heart. As we heard last week, he is going to be the kind of king to whom husbands can actually entrust their wives when they're away from their wives. Unlike David, Christ is going to be a righteous king, a king who who comes to serve rather than to be served. And the particularly good news that the angel proclaims to Mary and to all of us here today is that he is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. That his kingdom is, is never going to come to an end. We live in a world that, as that song goes, where the nations rage and kingdoms rise and fall. But in virtue of the angel's announcement here, we as believers take heart in the reality that there's indeed one king who is reigning over all. There's none above him, none before him. All of time is in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. He has all the power, all the glory. And so we can trust in his name for our God, our king. He is the ancient of days. He is that ancient of days whom Daniel saw seated upon the throne in the midst of Israel's exile in Babylon. He's the king who reigns over all forever. Every other kingdom will surely pass away, but not Christ's kingdom. As Revelation 11.15 says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the Savior whom the angel Gabriel proclaims to Mary, the Great One, the Son of the Most High, the everlasting King of the universe, says Gabriel, is coming. He is coming for sinners. He is coming to save sinners from all their sins. By one woman writes, royal sin and death were brought into the world, but so also by the childbearing of one woman, life and immortality were brought to light in the birth of Christ. And so Mary, like all those mothers before her, Mary, like all of us, is saved through childbearing, through the bearing of this Son, the Son of the Most High. This congregation is Mary's Savior. This is our Savior. Yes, Mary is rightly said by Elizabeth to be blessed among women. But a saving relationship to this Christ, to this Savior, we recognize is within reach of us all. It's a relationship that belongs to all who who repent of their sins and and who look to him in faith. Isn't this what we learn from Christ himself in Luke 11, 28? When, When the woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the, and the breasts at which you nursed. How again did our Lord respond? He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word, who hear me and keep it. He spoke similarly in Mark 3.35 when the crowd that was sitting around him said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're, and they're seeking you. What did he say to the crowd? He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother. He is, she is my sister and mother. Mary's Savior is our Savior too. The child to be conceived in her womb and the son whom she is going to bring into the world is going to be the Savior that God's people have been waiting for ever since his promise in the garden. And the angel assures her of that, doesn't he? In verse 34, Mary asks the question, how will this be so since I am but a virgin? This is not a question that that Mary asks in doubt or in unbelief. Yes, the, the angel announcement is overwhelming and incomprehensible for sure, but unlike Zechariah in the temple, Mary is not asking for proof in unbelief. She believes what the angel has said is what will be, but she simply does not understand. In the original Greek, Mary's words do not express doubt, but rather being Overwhelmed by the incomprehensible grandeur of this announcement, says one pastor, she merely inquires as to the manner in which that which has been promised will take place. How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel doesn't rebuke her, as he rebuked Zechariah, but the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. With these words, the angel assures her that what God has promised, he will surely do. This child will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. In this way, we understand the child will thus not come into the world tainted by sin as we do. And so he'll be able to to wash away the taint of our sin as we confess in Lord's Day 14 of the Catechism. God by his angel tells Mary how these things shall be to assure her. This is something that God loves to do, isn't it? God loves to assure his people. He not only gives us his word, but he gives us the sacraments to, to assure us that That what he has said, he will surely do. In his grace and mercy, he assures us. He gives us certainty. In fact, if you turn back to the opening lines of Luke's gospel, you discover that this is the expressed purpose for his writing the gospel in the first place. This is how Luke prefaces his whole gospel in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Holy Spirit will come upon her in the shadow and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And to add to her assurance, he says, just go and see your relative Elizabeth, who though she was old age, she was advanced in years and barren, she has also conceived and is six months into her pregnancy. Just go and see she too has conceived and will give birth to a son. For nothing, the angel says, nothing 
is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Congregation, do you believe that this morning? Do you say with the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Indeed, nothing is too hard for you. Again, writes J.C. Ryle, our faith at best is very feeble. Our knowledge at its highest is clouded with much infirmity. But among the many antidotes of a doubting, anxious, and questioning state of mind, few antidotes will be found more useful than that which is set before us here, namely a thorough conviction of the omnipotence, the almighty power of God. Nothing is impossible with him. Nothing is too hard for him. There's no sin so black that God himself cannot blot out. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from from all sins, the Bible says. No heart is is so hard that that God cannot come and soften it because the Spirit is said to, to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. There's no trial too hard or Difficulty too great because the grace of God is sufficient for us. If God is for us, we know that no one can be against us. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is impossible with him. Indeed, writes Ryle, faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. And so having been assured that nothing is impossible with him, notice how Mary responds. Mary responds in submission. She asks no further questions. She raises no objections. But she submits herself to the will of the Lord. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. From there she made her way to the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Here are two women touched by God. One, an elderly woman, a woman advanced in years. Another, a young woman, a poor virgin, but both pregnant by the grace of God. And yet Elizabeth says to Mary, when she sees Mary, she knows that the Lord is doing something wonderful for his people. Even the baby John leaps for joy in the womb. And these verses show us the joy that comes whenever someone recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. Good news causes us to leap for joy. And so Elizabeth also confesses what we must confess, that this child, the son in Mary's womb, is her Lord. Blessed be the mother of of my Lord, she says. 
She confesses that the child in Mary's womb is the Christ whom David proclaimed in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this confession causes Mary to break forth into song. And while we don't have the time this morning to unpack this song as fully as I would have liked to, you may have noticed that the theme that, the, that perhaps strings these verses together, ties these verses together, is this, this theme of reversal. In Mary's song, we learn that when Christ comes into the world, he turns the world upside down. The humble are, are exalted and the proud are scattered. <coughs> my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The Lord lifts up the humble. Mary speaks of her low and humble estate. She acknowledges that she herself stands in need of a Savior. She says, blessed, she rejoices in God, my Savior, she says. Contrary to the teachings of, of Rome, she does not give any indication that she herself is in some way without sin or without the need of a Savior. But she confesses her own need. On the contrary, says one pastor, she uses the language of one who has been taught by the grace of God to feel her own sins. That so far from being able to save others, she too requires a Savior for her own soul. Throughout the song, she, she echoes lines from the, throughout the Old Testament that spoke of this coming grace of God in Jesus Christ. Mary, she knows, was a nobody from nowhere. She was a sinner deserving nothing, but God did for her just as he did for you and me. He reached down in his grace and saved her. He saw her in her humble and lowly estate, and God did great things for her. And so she not only magnifies the Lord, but she also magnifies the Lord's mercy, doesn't she? She says, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Boys and girls, to fear God does not mean here to be afraid of God, but to fear God here means to cherish or to, to reverence God. To fear him means that you want to honor him. And by the Spirit of Christ, Mary assures us in her song that God's mercy is for those who fear him. God's mercy is for those who desire to honor him, who reverence him. But you notice, secondly, that God does not only lift up the humble, but he also humbles the proud. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. In these verses, Mary moves beyond what the Lord has done for her 
personally to what the Lord has done for Israel and for the world. She remembers the great deeds of God, no doubt, but she now speaks with the promise of Christ written upon her heart. She sings as though our redemption in Christ is already as good as done. Notice how Mary speaks throughout this song in the past tense, although she is prophesying about the future. Why does Mary speak this way? Mary speaks this way because she knows that when God says he's going to do something, it's as good as already done. Boys and girls, God's promises are sure. They, are, they find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ, don't they? When Christ came into the world, he came to exalt the humble, but he also came to humble the proud. God fills the hungry with good things, she says, but the rich, those who, who rely entirely upon themselves, God sends away empty. And through these reversals, the world is turned upside down. All the things that the world says are valuable, God shows us are worthless. Those whom the world considers to be strong and powerful, God shows to be weak and puny as he brings his Christ into the world. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, this is how God shames the world. Those who who think they are strong, those who think they are wise. God says to them, you know nothing. You have it all wrong. My mercy is for those who fear me. And so the words of Mary's song, writes Phil Reich, and strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. They comfort us with the promise that God will lift us up when we are low. And they also chasten our pride, destroying the proud thoughts of our hearts. And as Mary's words do this sanctifying work, they teach us to sing a song of our own. Mary's Savior is our Savior, and her song is our song. For God has surely helped his servant Israel. God has surely helped you and me in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. God has not forgotten to be merciful. And so we, like Mary, have every reason to sing, don't we? Blessed be the Lord forevermore. His promise stands from days of yore. His word is faithful now as then. Blessed be his name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again and give you thanks that Mary's Savior is our Savior too. That he came as the Great One. We thank you that he came as the Son of the Most High. that he he came as the great king who rules over the house of Jacob, your church, forever. Father, we thank you that Mary's assurance is our assurance, that you're not a God who would have us to live with question marks imprinted on our minds and hearts, that you're a God who in grace erases the question marks and replaces them with certainty. We thank you, Lord, that her song can be our song too. That you 
have mercy for those who fear you and that you have placed the fear of the Lord in our own hearts. Father, wherever pride remains, we pray that you would scatter it. And with your strong and mighty arm, you would scatter all our pride. That you would dash our pride to pieces. That we would find grace and mercy in the Savior who came in humility. That Savior who came in humility, trusting that in the midst of his humiliation, you would reward him with exaltation even as you promise to do for us as well if we are incorporated into him. We pray in his name and for his sake, O Lord. Amen.